we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that are company salvation, though we speak in this matter. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish or imitate those through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God... In our text this morning, Paul was in Philippians 3, 12 and following, talking about his sincere, earnest desire to be like Christ in every aspect of his life. I think we'll all agree in the text that Stan just read to us that the writer there, by inspiration, is uh, encouraging others who are recipients of this letter that they might share that same passion for Christ in their own lives. And that's what I want us to think about for a little while tonight. By the way, in, in light of the uh, prayer session that we had just here, I, I think it might be good for you to know that one of the things on our prayer list was uh, for rainfall. And uh, I heard, overheard Mark Sims back in the back say, let's split that up and pray for rain and fall. And I, I think that would be appropriate because I looked out on my thermometer this afternoon. It said 104, and that was on the shady side of the house. Wow. So let's continue to pray for rain and fall. I think every person who's grown up in America, as, as at least as a kid, has heard the challenge, I dare you. Uh, it's kind of like something I read somewhere, sorry I can't be more specific, uh, recently that said there is nothing good that follows the words, hey guys, look at this. Uh, and usually, at least among kids, when someone dares the other one to do something, it usually is going to be pretty dangerous or something mom or dad would not approve of. Some of us are even old enough to remember double dares. And if you were really deadly serious about a challenge, there was the infamous double dog dare. So if a regular dare didn't work, a double dog dare would uh, either motivate you or shame you to action. Rarely, if ever, did you allow that kind of dare to go unheeded. In this study, I want to capitalize in a positive way on that phrase, I dare you, because I'm using it in the best possible sense. In fact, in the dictionary definition sense of the word to have courage and to be fearless, that's what the word dare can also mean. All of us, both Christians and non-Christians, we need to be challenged to action from time to time. It's very easy for us to become laconic and complacent in our spiritual lives, and oftentimes we're not even aware of that condition in our own spiritual situation. We have to have others, and I think that's one of the reasons why the Lord has put us in his forever family, the church, so that we can encourage one another and edify one another in this regard. Some, something has to move us and motivate us uh, before it's too late. So with that in mind, I, I want to dare you tonight to consider the following challenge and then to act upon it. And the challenge is simply this, and it's not going to be anything that's deeply esoteric. It's not going to be difficult for us to understand this challenge. It's very simple and forthright. I challenge you to consider the condition of your soul. I think that's something that every one of us, especially as God's people, need to be doing anyway. But sometimes in all of the intricacies and the busyness of life, 
It is very easy for us to forget to do that kind of spiritual inventory, even on a regular basis. Now, that's a very scriptural challenge. I think it was as recent as last week. We looked at Paul's statement in his challenge, his charge to the Corinthian Christians in 2 Corinthians 13.5, where he said, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith, uh, test or prove yourselves. There's a very similar passage, a, a charge that I found in the Old Testament in Lamentations Chapter 4, verse 4 says, let us examine our ways and test them, and let us return to the Lord. I think that you'll note that the returning to the Lord, which was paramount importance in that day as well as in ours, can only be done if it is predicated by an examination of oneself. You don't return to the Lord unless you realize that you have distanced yourself from the Lord, that you're farther away from him than you ever intended to be. But with that recognition, hopefully the dare, the challenge will come that I'm willing to honestly do some spiritual introspection, acknowledge where I am or maybe where I need to be in terms of that relationship with God, and then to make that right, or maybe if we are in a right relationship, to continue to strengthen and build on that relationship. As I mentioned at the end of the lesson this morning, Socrates is the one, at least, who is credited with the statement, the unexamined life is not worth living. And that's not Bible, but I believe it's certainly a very biblical statement in in the sense of God would say that we all need to be examining our lives. I think we understand that at some intuitive level, that we all need to assess ourselves from, from time to time to make sure that we're on track in terms of our goals and our aspirations, or maybe just to make sure that we do have certain spiritual goals And that there are some things that we aspire to, that there are things that we want to accomplish, not just for ourselves, but in terms of our our servanthood in the kingdom of Christ. But then our goals and aspirations are all determined by our worldview. So that means that we need to take a step back before we start talking in, in great definition about what goals and aspirations that we have spiritually, what it is that we want to accomplish for God as long as we're on this planet, we have to make sure that we're squared away with a proper worldview. So let's take a step back and do that. And, and because if we don't, we'll wind, up, we'll wind up pursuing the same worldly goals as the average citizen, and we will not be doing what Paul said we need to do in Colossians 3 verse 1. We will not be setting our affections on things above not on things of the earth. I think that each of us as children of God realize that that is in fact a great challenge. It is so, so very easy for us to allow our affections, our aspirations, our desires and designs in life to be what the world's is. To just make sure that we're keeping pace with the world rather than Realizing that as God's church, his ecclesia, we are intended to be by God called out of the world. And that he wants us to step out of the crowd and to do something that's, that's outstanding for him. And I don't mean necessarily the kind of thing that will get your name in the paper or even in the church bulletin. But I mean outstanding in the sense of reaching your full spiritual potential. Using whatever gift or gifts that God has endowed you with. And using those to the maximum in order to achieve his purposes here in this world. And if that's not what we're intended to be doing, then I've misread this instruction book. I think we all agree that that's what God wants of us. There used to be a a British TV show called Dempsey and Make Peace back in the 1980s. If you want to know more about that, you're just going to have to ask 
uh, I guess Philip Hardy, he probably would be the only one in this congregation that we could check our facts with. But uh, from what I read, uh, the, the guy was Dempsey, who happened to be a tough New York City cop. And after a reliable police informer reported that the mob had placed a contract on Dempsey's head, his boss sent Dempsey, uh, a gruff, uh, head-busting maverick, to London for safekeeping. Hopefully across the, the ocean, you know, nobody was going to be trying to kill him. So anyway, that was the idea behind why uh, a New York City cop wound up in London. And so that's when Makepeace enters the picture. She was a very feminine, very British, very proper English policewoman. And they became partners, and together they played the lead roles in what turned out to be a classic uh, English cops and robbers sort of, uh, of scenario. Well, on the, on the lead end, I knew I had a point. Here it is. <laughs> on the lead end to every one of those shows each week, at the top of the shows as the opening credits are, are rolling, it showed uh, Dempsey and Makepeace doing all the things that that cops would do in, uh, you know, in fighting crime in a city. It, it showed them, for example, running away while there's burning cars, you know, exploding in the background, all the pyrotechnics that you would expect these days. They, they dove to the pavement so that they would not be sprayed by machine gun fire. They rolled across the ground, returned gunfire at the bad guys. And after that lead-in, you knew that there was a, an hour of nonstop action that was on the way. Well, then the, the, the suddenly the screen quietened. And the camera zoomed in, a close-up of Dempsey's battle-worn face. He glared straight into the camera lens for what seemed like an eternity. And then, very matter-of-factly, he, he summarized his view of the world with these words. Now, remember that this was always, every show started with this as the opening credits were rolling. He would always summarize his view of life with these words. Life is hard, he said, and then you die, dissolved to a commercial. Well, Dempsey was certainly not the intellectual sort, but I think there's a ring of truth to what he said. He took life one episode at a time, never giving thought as to what tomorrow might bring. A lot of us maybe are like Dempsey in that regard. We're living for today, not really thinking a great deal about tomorrow, and there's something to be said for that. But also, we also need to be acting in such a way, sowing seed today, so that we can reap the right kind of harvest tomorrow. There's something to be said for that as well. And so there, there comes a day, though, when I think each of us wants the real answers to the questions that Dempsey raised. And maybe we even elaborate a little on his statement by asking questions like, I want to know why life is so hard. And, and I want to know what happens when we die. So if life is hard and then you die, why is it so hard? Why do even God's people struggle and what happens after this life is over? And, and let me say, if we haven't asked at least those fundamental questions, then that's where our spiritual introspection needs to begin. Because we need to ask those questions. And we need to recognize that there is more to life than just what we know in this world. And I know that I'm, I'm speaking to the church here tonight. You already are in tacit agreement on that point. But we still need to be refreshed. We need to be reminded that if we're going to truly and honestly and beneficially examine our lives, and we're going to do that on a regular basis, we need to make sure that we're asking all the right questions. So when we examine our standing before God and the condition of our souls, I remind you that more is at stake 
than just achieving all the goals that you set for yourself. Because our goals can be about just about anything. They can be worthy, they can be unworthy. We know people who have aspirations that are tremendously ungodly. And so, number one, we need to make sure that our goals, what we want from life, what we want to accomplish in life, is in keeping with, is squared away with the will of God. But when we progress along the trajectory that we've set for ourselves... Let's say we have set some goals, that there are some things spiritually that we want to accomplish in life. We we oftentimes get so busy in in the details, in the minutia of life, that we don't really ask ourselves the why questions in life. Too busy living life to ever question, is this what God wants me to be doing? Is this how I can best maximize the talents that God has blessed me with? So I I guess I'm saying that when when we hit all the targets that we've actually set up for ourselves... Let's say you get half to the halfway point. You're, you're at halftime in your life, whether you know it or not. You're at halftime. And you're kind of doing a reassessment of, a, of how well you performed in the first half and what you need to be doing in the second half. And, and maybe you're, you're able to kind of pat yourself on the back and get a little bit of gratification from the fact that you have reached some of your goals. It may be financial goals. It may be family goals. Hopefully many of them are going to be spiritual goals. But you've reached those goals and, 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 and you, you can pat yourself on the back for that. But by the same token, there are other questions that begin to come even when you have met all those goals that you have established. Especially when you realize that having met many of those goals, you're still not satisfied. There's still an empty place in your life. An empty place in your heart. You find no real deep satisfaction. You, you can, but then began to ask the really hard questions in life, like, who am I? Why, why do I exist? Is this all there is? I think, I think there are a lot of middle-agers in our world today, and many of us, even in the kingdom, who, who ask that question when you get to the halfway point of life. Is this all there is? Or, or maybe if I'm so successful, then why do I feel so empty? You see, those are not questions that just those outside the church are asking themselves. If we are living the examined life, we are asking those questions daily of ourselves. Remember that that Solomon, the mighty king of Israel, according to the book of Ecclesiastes, realized almost all of his life aspirations. He hit all of his targets. Still, he found no real meaning to his existence in life. His targets were power and possessions and pleasure. Those were the big three in Solomon's life. If you've read the book, you know that. But over and over again, he said things, I mean, several times in each chapter, things along the lines of all is vanity, all is empty, and it's a striving after the wind. And and you're looking at this, this man who was, at the time, the richest person on the planet. And say, how in the world could he feel that about what he had accomplished in life? He was the king of Israel. I mean, that's where the power really rested. And yet Solomon is saying everything is empty. It's a striving after the wind. It's not worth the effort. And only when he injected the God factor into the equation could he say in the very next to the last verse of this book, in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. You know the verse. And then he went on to say, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And then if we don't hit our targets, the list of questions gets even longer. We ask questions like, why me, Lord? If you love me, then where are you when I need you the most? 
Why are you blessing the people around me, but it doesn't seem it looks like I'm behind the door when the blessings are passed out? Why don't you bless me like you bless others? And maybe even the hard questions like, how, how could you let this happen to me if you're going through some difficult stage in your life? And our, and our hurt feelings slowly give way to anger and bitterness, or maybe fear and guilt, or maybe some, some of each. After all is considered, the number one shortcoming of humanity is that we tend to live unexamined lives. Most people have not carefully carved out their worldview in their personal search for truth and obedience to the God who made us and before whom we will someday stand accountable. Instead, even as as God's people, oftentimes we find ourselves rushing from task to busy task, but we don't call enough timeouts to really reflect on life's larger meaning and purpose. And I'm just challenging you tonight that that you start doing that. Whether it's the first thing when you wake up in the morning or the last thing before you go to sleep at night, ask yourself, am I doing? Am I what God would have me to be in this world? Are my goals big enough? Are they lofty enough? Is this something that God would approve? Can this be found within the framework of his will? If If it can't, then you need to abandon it and you need to do it as quickly as possible. But maybe there are goals that will change as our life goes on. We'll realize that God has blessed us with other talents. And and as as those talents are added to our ability list, we'll be able to accomplish even more. I've known people that were seemingly one-talented people, but they used that talent well. They used it to the glory of God. And just as he did with those talented, those uh, one, two, and five-talent men in Matthew 25, God gave them other talents. So we need to make sure that we have carved out our worldview. Instead, we, it's very easy for us to, to just live life myopically from day to day, living under the tyranny of today's most current set of problems. How are you doing? Well, that depends on what's happening to me at the present moment. No, we ought to be able to give a better and more objective answer than that. Our lives, like police officer Dempsey's, are consumed by, by lots of action as we react to the variety of things that vie for our attention and our time, and our money. But as Gandhi said, there's more to life than just increasing its speed. Spiritually speaking, even if we have done what Solomon finally did at the end of his book, if we have injected the God factor, the God element in our lives, there's still the danger of just, as we talked about this morning, compartmentalizing our spiritual life. Making sure that there's just a little cubby hole over here where, where we place God and things spiritual. And so we've compartmentalized that and, and, and we think that that will square us away because now we've got all the bases covered. But you can't spend much time in this book and really believe that God will be satisfied with that. Or to believe that we will succeed spiritually. That we will be able to accomplish everything God wants to, us, uh, to accomplish in this life with that kind of compartmentalized view of Christianity. So important in our spiritual lives that we don't just do that because otherwise what we wind up doing is just playing church. We can very easily just go through the motions of having all the signs of religiosity but none of the real spiritual depth that we need to live successfully and victoriously for Jesus day by day. We may show up for worship services. 
But the message that we come away with doesn't seem to be doing for us what it does for at least some of the people around us. And we don't know why exactly. And before we spend a great deal of time thinking about it, our minds wander to the work or to the school or to the relationship problems that really are eating away at our gut. And we speed off to the next busy task. And pretty soon, by Monday afternoon, the memory of Sunday and the message that came with it is as distant as the memory of last summer's vacation. You know, just as surely as a lawyer or an electrician or a doctor is no better than the effort that they put into keeping up with, staying current with their profession. So the Christian is really no better than the effort that we put into self-examination and asking ourselves life's big questions. The second thing that I want us to look at tonight is the big picture. Because folks, if we don't have a good grasp of the big picture, then even when we examine our lives, we're going to be doing that with a skewed instrument of measurement. There's an old expression that's been around for many years, and I guess it's been around because there's an element of truth in it, that says something along the lines of, he can't see the forest for the trees. And I'm just saying that sometimes we get so distracted and so consumed by the details by the minutia of life, that we can easily lose sight of the big picture. Solomon also reflected on that phenomenon in his autobiography by saying that life can become an an endless routine of filling and emptying, and that uh, nothing is new under the sun, you know, same old, same old every day, same routine, same repetition, unless we remember, unless we remember that the big picture is to fear God and keep his commandments. That keeps everything into a proper balance. And as we grow and hopefully as we mature, our worldview develops from our many experiences and relationships. And again, that, that worldview may change somewhat. It may be modified in terms of the understanding of what God's will for my life is. That is, when we get through the halfway point, we may decide that God wants me to do something else than what I did on the first half. I've known a number of people that were absolutely content of getting up and going to church on Sunday and on Wednesday night. And then all of a sudden they recognize that their, their life really, if they're going to live their life the way God would have them to, needs to change into second gear and third gear, and that they need to put themselves into overdrive. And so they sell their house, they sell their possessions, and they go to do mission work in some third world country for the rest of their days. There's a number of people that have decided to do that. And I'm not saying that every one of us has to do that in order to be a good Christian, but I am saying that self-examination can lead us to those kinds of situations where we say, is this what God wants me to continue doing with my life? I've known a number of people who, you know, got in one or two years of education, all of a sudden they changed their major. Why? Well, because they decided to take a different track. Maybe God wants me to do something else with my life, and so that means that I'm going to need to educate myself and prepare myself in a different way. So all of that comes from a worldview, and the worldview can come from, from that experience and from those relationships. I, I, probably, I don't, really don't want to impugn your intelligence tonight by saying that we need to remember that there are two major worldviews that every person on this planet shares. And the first one is, of course, the secular worldview. It believes that man is, is cent- the central figure in shaping events. That is, everything in life depends upon me. And I can find all of the resources within myself 
in order to be able to live life successfully. That man is the master of his own destiny. That there is nothing outside of man either shaping us or guiding us in our quest for success in life. So that in a nutshell is the secular worldview. The second worldview, of course, is the Christian worldview. It believes that God is sovereign, that God is active in, in worldly events and in our everyday life. The secularist believes that man is intrinsically good. Again, that he's master of his own fate. He determines the, uh, the boundaries of his, uh, of his own achievements and his own knowledge and that he is unconstrained by moral standards apart from those that he chooses at his sole discretion. I, I believe, even though some of that may sound a little overly academic, that we understand what we're talking about. We're living right now in a world where people are choosing their own moral values. And why are they doing that? And more importantly, how are they doing that? How, how are they coming up with any kind of rule book that says, here's what you ought not to do, and here is how you ought not to treat me, and here's how you ought to treat me? Well, it all comes from their own self-interest. It's a very utilitarian sort of perspective about building an ethical system apart from God. But it's all, man's, it's all man-centered. It is human-centric in that sense. It is, it's all saying, here's what is best for me, at least the way I see it. Because, folks, if there is no ultimate truth, if there is no objective standard that a sovereign God of heaven has given to his people and to the entire world for that matter, whether they heed it or not, then anything goes. I've said this from the pulpit before, and I hope it doesn't sound too blasphemous, but I, I'm, when we talk about and we pray about, and rightly so, when we're concerned about all of the mass shootings and the violence that's going on, not just in our country, but in our state and even in our city, I'm, not, I'm surprised that it's not worse than it is. We're, we've raised a generation of people saying there is no God, and therefore there is no ultimate moral standard, and you and I ought to just behave nicely toward one another because someone here said so. And because you'll, you'll go to prison if you don't do that. Folks, there has got to be something deeper and greater and finer and richer in existence than that. Because clearly, if you and I are able to self-select our own code of standards, our own code of ethics and behavior, there are going to be a lot of people that say, I don't share yours. I'm going to do what I want to do. And that's where we are in the world today. We are living today in a world without God. Or at least without an acknowledgement of God. God is still here. He's still alive. He's still active. But I'm just saying a, an examined life has to ask ourselves these questions. Why do I act the way I do? Why do I behave? Why do I think? Why do I talk the way I do? You and I have a, a road book that leads us from earth to heaven. But otherwise we're a long fly, fly ball in a high wind. We, we have no moral standards. The world, the secular worldview has moral standards that, that, that are ambiguous and, again, determined by each person. What's right for you is not right for me and so on. The Christian also believes in the intrinsic goodness of man. But not just because we were born intrinsically good, even though I believe we are. And it's only later that we become conscious of sin and we violate that standard. And, and, and sin is a transgression of the law of God, First John 3, 4 says. But we believe that we're intrinsically good because we were created in the image of a God who's good. It's a completely different reason for believing in the intrinsic goodness of man. And this living, breathing, omnipotent God possesses all knowledge. And because of his great love for us, he has established moral standards for our protection. 
I like to think of these moral standards as wet paint signs that we can either heed to our best benefit or we can ignore to our great spiritual detriment. But the God who wrote the, the rule book is holy and he is living and he is personal. The danger, I think, in today's world, in increasingly influenced by the secular mindset, is that Christians can easily see things in, in bits and pieces instead of in the totals. And that's why I'm spending this time talking about the importance of the big picture. It's like when my wife puts together a, a thousand, you know my wife, right? Okay, I want to make sure we're squared away on that. When she puts together a thousand piece, she's a patient woman, by the way, or she couldn't do this, a thousand piece puzzle on our dining room table. When she first pours that thing out of the box, what a convoluted mess. But when she put, finally puts it all together, what a work of art. And, and that's the danger of looking at life in its bits and pieces and rather than at the big picture. If we're not careful, we'll sound the alarm in our society over the breakdown of the family, uh, the prevalence of pornography, gun violence, racism, poverty, abortion. We can make that list almost infinitely long. And these, these are rightful concerns of ours, no doubt about it. But as Dr. Francis Schaeffer has pointed out, we have not seen this th these things as a totality, each being a part, a symptom of a larger problem. And the larger problem, folks, is the basic shift in values that we've seen in a nation that's determined to move further and further away from God. It's a fundamental change in how we view life and how we view the world as a whole and why we're here in the first place. I think we've moved as a nation away from biblical Christian values toward a worldview that lets us, as we've just mentioned, self-select our values based on whether or not those values meet our self-interests. Kind of like a child in a, in a candy store. We go along and we pick out our values. We determine our own fate. We we captain our own ship, or at least so we think. Allow me to state as we conclude what ought to be obvious. These two worldviews, the Christian and the, and the secular worldview, are on a collision course. They inevitably produce opposite results. You knew that when you came in here. I just needed to remind you. But to understand the differences between the two is the key first step in resolving the questions of the unexamined life. You know, I'm afraid we don't, often we don't uh, see these dramatic differences or where they will inexorably lead us. I'm sure you've seen the circus performer who had the ability to ride two horses at the same time, you know, ride around the, the, the ring, uh, one foot on one, stand in standing position, of course, one foot on the back of one horse and, and one foot on the back of another horse as he rode those horses in tandem around the circle. But if the two horses began to move apart from each other, guess what? The rider has to make a decision. Which horse am I going to go with? You can't ride both of them. None of us can be like the, the old boy that was asked how he was doing and how his life was going. And he said, I feel like the cowboy that jumped on two horses and rode off in opposite directions. You know, sometimes you may feel that way. Or, or maybe to be like Yogi Berra who said, whenever I come to a fork in the road, I always take it. Real life isn't that way. Real life demands that we choose what horse we're going to ride, which fork in the road we're going to take. We have to make some hard decisions in our lives and choose which path we'll take, which worldview we'll navigate our lives by. And so it is with our spiritual journey. At first, these two worldviews really don't seem that far apart when we're just beginning our, our Christian journey and first beginning to mature in Christ. At, at first, they don't seem that different. But unless we carefully examine 
our lives. We tend to see the Christian worldview and the secular worldview as being pretty close together, like those two circus horses. And, and, and however, when we begin to, to take a closer look, we start to see some unmistakable differences. And we come to realize that the choice between a Christian worldview and a secular worldview is really a choice between, between God's race and the rat race. Apparently, Jesus wanted his disciples to always understand that, and that's why he constantly talked about this in his three-and-a-half-year ministry. That's why he warned in Matthew 6, 24. And folks, if this is not a warning that needs to be sounded in 2019, as surely as it did in the first century, I don't know what, what constitutes a warning. But what he said was, no man can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one, he'll love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let me give you one final challenge. Some of you are just beginning your university education. Others of you are continuing your education. And then there are others, probably the preponderance of this audience, who are long past the college student age. And school of any sort is just a foggy memory in our minds. While there are all kinds of pieces of helpful advice that I could probably give you as you're just beginning your new life on your own. There's one piece of counsel that I think that I could probably give to everybody here. And I want to do that before I end this lesson. And that is simply this. Have the courage and the spiritual integrity and the fortitude to constantly, every day, examine your life in view of eternity. Because if you do that then God will bless you and that you will continue to grow. But if you don't, if there's a time when you stop making that constant introspection, that examination of your life, because every day you're going to be making choices, you're going to be making decisions that are either going to move you closer to God or going to move you farther away from God. But with God in your life, you can go far and you can accomplish much. Without God in your life, no matter how far you go and no matter how much you accomplish, none of it is going to mean a great deal in the end. For Solomon said... Why don't you just fear God and keep his commandments? Because after all, that is the whole of man. That is the entirety of what our existence is all about. I'm asking you tonight, are you living an unexamined life or an examined life? Have you come to the place where you understand the dramatic differences in worldviews? Do you understand why you think the things you, you think and say the things you say and do the things you do? If so, then what's the next step? I heard about a preacher who wanted to get to know a new uh, church newcomer who was a, a big sports enthusiast, trying to find some area of commonality. And so he found out that the preacher was, stay with me for a moment, the preacher was a boxing enthusiast. He really liked boxing. So he decided to ask this guy to go to a boxing match with him there in town, since the guy says, I've never been to one of those, but he likes sports of all kinds. And so just before the fight started, one of the boxers made the sign of the cross on his chest. And the man who had never been to a boxing match said, well, what does that mean? The preacher replied, doesn't mean a thing if you can't box. <laughs> all that you learn, all that you will come to know in your life, all that you will do in life doesn't mean a thing if you do not walk the talk in your Christian existence. If you do not carefully formulate your worldview, and if you do not constantly examine your life in view of eternity. And that's why we sing songs of invitation. If you're not a child of God tonight, what better time than right now to commit your life 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. But that all begins with formulation of the right worldview. Recognition that I don't know what's best for me, but I know God does. It is not in man that walks to direct his own steps. And if you're willing to accept the Lord's instruction and direction in your life, turn your back on sin in sincere repentance, confess the name of Jesus as God's Son, we would be more than delighted to baptize you into Christ tonight, where that your spiritual slate can be wiped clean, you can be a new creature in Christ and leave this place with your eternity certain while we stand while we sing.